Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, allow me, my name is Russ, to stay another welcome to you. If you're new for the first time, or even if you're not, my, uh, I was about to say my name is Russ, but I just said that. My name is Russ. And uh, we are Hope Brooklyn, we are a new community of faith. I believe no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room to take. Um, one quick plug before we enter into uh, our topic. We have a new YouTube channel. What, what? YouTube? Um, and we have the novice phone number. So, uh, a way to increase engagement between us spiritually throughout the week. Nathan mentioned it. As we're going through this, this sermon, or any sermons, if questions come up, if things don't make sense, if you're like, ooh, I wish you had explained this better, or explain this in a different way, or I disagree, which that is totally allowed, um, text in your question to this number. Uh, I or someone from the team, we will compile these, we will find uh, maybe a least common denominator, a common theme, and we'll attempt a response at it in a video on YouTube, either that Monday or Tuesday, the week after, we'll put it in the, the email newsletter uh, so you'll get a, a, a conversation going. So save that. Great. We are in our summer series that we are titling Storytime with Jesus. Storytime with Jesus. We have been looking at the parables that Jesus told. Parables are devices. They're, they're devices that Jesus used to teach people. They're stories, and the best way I can define it, they're stories about which the concepts that he uses are really easy. And for any first century listener, they would understand all the concepts. However, the way Jesus employs them is really difficult. So the concept, he talks about agriculture, he talks about wheat, he talks about planting seeds, he talks about yeast and bread. Those are very easy. Any first century listener would hear that and be like, oh, I know how this works. But he employs them in such a way that it kind of turns the world on its head. And so you're left there thinking, well, what do I do with that? How do I live this out? The first three weeks when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. And we're going to continue in that vein. However, we're going to look um, at the kingdom of heaven in a different point of time today. So I have this really bad graphic that I found, but it's as easy as I could, you know, it sort of communicates what we're doing. Yes, this is, this was created by a third grader, I'm pretty sure. Um, I would have done worse, so that's a this is a theological concept that we call the overlap of the ages. The overlap of the ages. At its simplest, this is how it works. That lower arrow, the arrow at the bottom, the blue arrow, that is the present age. That's the age uh, that God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. And in the process of that age growing and forming, somehow, as we talked about last week, an enemy rebelled. And an enemy planted weeds that caused this age to begin withering and dying and not be its fullest self, full of goodness. Um, and it continued on. And that is the age that we were born into. We are part of this age. We are born with that fundamental sense of rebellion in us. Um, so everywhere we look, no matter how hard we try, we just see brokenness. We feel it in ourselves that we make mistakes. We can't live up to our highest ideals of what we love. Our society, no matter where we are in the world, our society can't live up to that highest ideal. Even good things with the best intentions, like marriage. I shared that example with Anna a couple weeks back. We engaged in a conversation where we worked so hard 
to really meet the other person, and it's still a funeral to the end. That describes the withering nature of this age, which is a shorthand word for sin. Sin, all the ways that things are broken and not as they should be. Now, that cross is Jesus. <laughs> so God, rather than abandon this age, entered into the story. He came, which is staggering in and of itself, unlike anything else. That the perfect God would give up perfection and enter into his broken world, even though he didn't break the world. His creation broke the world, or some facet of it. He doesn't abandon it. He enters into it. And he lives a really interesting life. A life that definitely the people around him in his day had never seen anything like it. And I dare say, when you examine the history books, there is something, like the more you, you read about this Jesus of Nazareth, the more compelling and frankly terrifying he is. But the reason why we, we say, according to the story, is because he's not of this age. Like he's human, but he's also fully God. He's of the next age. The, the age of God, the perfect age. So then his, his story continues, he ministers, he heals, and it ends up with him being crucified, being killed. He dies on the cross. So as to take all the brokenness into himself, but not to be defeated by it. Because the, the ace of God's sleeve is that he resurrects Jesus from the dead. After three days, he resurrects. And now we're told that Jesus is the firstborn of the new age, the new creation. And for all of us, for, for whoever wants to participate in that, they can yield their lives, enter into the waters of baptism, receive the embrace of God, and through Jesus be reconciled into a right relationship with God. So, what that means is that the new age is actually present in the world right now. There is a new age in the midst of the old age. And that new age has another word. Word is called church. Big C church. Comes from the Greek ecclesia, which basically means people. And I know that's tough for us because many of us grew up thinking church meant building, right? I go to church. We can still talk about that. We say welcome to church. Which it helps, but it's also really unhelpful because it's not getting at the reality of who we are. For those of us who are in Christ, we are the people of the new age. So right now, what is going on in the cosmos, in the universe, is called the overlap of the ages. There is a new age that's present within this whole broken one, and that new age is us. That's why you hear language like, we, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. That's what's getting at. We are a people of the next age who are called to live, of faithful to that age, faithful to that kingdom, called to live in this very bent withering world. So what does that mean? The question is, how do we live? What are these characteristics of the new age? And we've talked about many of them. Some of them are, are love, right? Agape love. Not, not romantic, not, not the love that's very self-absorbed, self-interested. Uh, I'm talking about the love that actually is able to see another person and sacrifice for them simply because they are human and alive and that's a God love. Patience. Patience, especially with our enemies. Right? Forgiveness, which we'll talk about a little bit more about today, but I remember a line that says, forgiveness is not human. It's not a human behavior. Forgiveness is divine. And when you think about it, especially the ways that people have been tremendously wrong to be able to look at another over time 
and say, you are still my brother and my sister, and I welcome you to my table. That's not human. That's not of this age. That's of some, some other age. That's of a different type of place. Joy, humility, love of neighbor, expanding our definition of neighbor. All of these are what Jesus is getting at when he says, that's the stuff of the new age. And it's now present in us, the church. It's now present in us, the church. And now our parable today, which we're going to talk about, kingdom of heaven, comes at that brown line past the cross. All right? Our parable, Jesus is talking about the moment when the first age is done, when the withering is finished, and now all that's left is the new age, the age where God is all alone. Now, before we get to it, a little context. Jesus is responding to a question. In fact, he's responding to a question that happened two chapters ago. Two chapters. He was with his disciples in Jerusalem. And his disciples effectively asked us, asked him, tell us, what is the sign of the coming of the new age and the completion of this age? What is the sign when the first age ends and the second age begins and, and continues forever? And Jesus begins to answer in chapter 24. And his answer is really strange. He draws upon very vivid and, and kind of like uh, we, you use the word apocalyptic imagery. It feels a little hallucinatory in a sense. Um, and as he's speaking, you realize that he's not really answering their question. He's not saying when the completion of the first age is going to happen. He, they ask for a sign, and he starts describing many things. He says, there are going to be famines, and there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there are going to be false saviors who rise up and they will deceive people. And all that will happen, there will be persecution and imperialism. And he starts describing these really apocalyptic images, and, and the earth is going to shake, there's going to be earthquakes, and there's going to be natural disasters, and it's kind of like, well, you're, you're not really giving us one sign, you're just kind of describing the world as it is. And then he ends by saying, this is my paraphrase, I'm paraphrasing Jesus, just that way. No one knows when. No one knows when it's going to happen. If people knew, they would be prepared. But since you don't know, continue the work of the kingdom. Learn to be patient. Learn to wait. And to endure. Be the people of the new age in the midst of the old. Be people of forgiveness of agape love, peacemakers, joy, humility, truth. Now usually throughout the ages, especially throughout the last 150 years in, in this country, there have been two responses to Jesus' words here. And I think both would not be Jesus' choice. The first is to over-spiritualize his words, to try to predict the events, even though he just said no one knows when. So you had groups that, that tried to um, figure out, okay, who's this false savior and these rumors of wars? Oh, maybe that's the rumor of war. And oh, look, there's this blood moon happening and maybe that's it. So they try to predict what's going on and predict what's going to happen. The issue with that is that it focuses too much on the age to come. Well, then the other um, alternative is not to over-spiritualize Jesus' word, but to over-politicize it. To be obsessed, as John Howard Yoder says, by a deep desire to make things move in the right direction. And notice, this is, this is going to be key. I'm going to say some stuff that's going to try to toe a middle line 
And you're going to want to pull my words to one extreme or the other. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm staying in this middle line. And when we're, when we're obsessed by a deep desire to make the world move in the right direction, that is to say, when our hope is in this world getting fixed, well then what we've done is we focus too much on this image. If over-spiritualizing focuses too much on the age to come, over-politicizing focuses too much on this age as it, as it is now. You're going to hear me refer to this. you got to bring me Stanley Powerballs. He has this beautiful quote, which again, I've changed one line, but it's, it's the same idea. He goes, the church does not have a political vision. The church is a political vision. The church does not have a political vision. The church is a political vision. That is to say, our theology who we are does not have political implications. Our theology is a politics. If, we, if the church had a political vision, we would be a political party. And we would be obsessed with making our country a better place. But if our church is a political vision, we're already that better country. Does that make sense? We're already that better country. We're not obsessed with making it better. We are that better country. And therefore, out of that place, out of that overlap of the ages, out of the being the new world, in the midst of the old, we can begin to work with a different temperament, if you will. With the same level of passion, but a different temperament. We are that new world. And if you're like me, I grew up in a context that over-spiritualized, that over-spiritualized these words, but now I feel like my temptation, speaking very personally, is to over-politicize these words. Is to think that the whole purpose of the church is to make the world a better place. But what I'm trying to say, what Paulus is getting at is, the world cannot become that better place outside of the cross of Christ. The world cannot be fixed unless the world becomes the church. That, that isn't too confusing. It is only through the cross that the new age is opened up. So we can begin and continue to work in the world while still recognizing that the only thing that will ultimately fix the world is if the world realizes what Jesus is and enters into that space. So with that concept, we enter into chapter 25, asking the question, okay, well, how do we be the people of the new age? How do we be that people in this in this new age, in this overlap of the ages. We are of the new age, the church. We are already a better country amidst us here, living in a world that is not. What do we do? What is asked of us? And here's our passage today. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. You might know, even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, not familiar, you, you might even know some of the, the themes of this passage. So Jesus is talking, and interestingly, this is the last parable he gives right before the events of his betrayal and his persecution, his death, and resurrection takes place. This is what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and clothed you. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothing? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed. Into the eternal fire, prepared, catch this, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. And they also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, did not help you, and he will reply, tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of these things, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will eternal life. An easy and yet terrifying story. Especially for us and us. We're going to talk about why that is. I think it's easy and terrifying because it challenges a couple things about the way we've grown, the way we think. And the first thing it challenges is our understanding of faith, right? Are we not saved by faith? That's what we read about in Paul. says you are saved by grace. God has welcomed you into his family. And it's by faith, by receiving that, that you are saved. Are we not saved by faith? Well, of course we are. However, it is the hallmark of the West especially since the Enlightenment to intellectualize everything, right? To make faith um, a system of beliefs and doctrines, that the way we think about things, the way we think about God. But again, Howard Ross says it perfect. He goes, the question is not whether you believe Jesus is raised from the dead. The question is whether your life makes no sense unless he is. Don't tell me if you believe Jesus is raised from the dead. Don't tell me what you think about him. Let me see how you think. I'll tell you what you think about it. Don't, don't tell me what you love. Let me see how you treat people. Let me see how you spend money. And very objectively, without any sort of bias, I'll tell you what you love. Right? So in the West, we sort inter of internalize this idea that faith are what we think about things. Specifically what we think about God. Right? We have to have the right set of beliefs. But this parable, at least according to Jesus, says the faithful ones are known by how they treat people. Specifically, how they treat those among them who are in need. That demonstrates what you think about God, what you think about yourself, what you think about the world. And of course, friends, it is a journey. It's if we, that overlap into ages. We are all those who are part of this withering world, or as C.S. Lewis calls, Calls it, he says it's a bent world. It's bent. We're part of the bent world. And God, by us participating in Jesus, he's beginning to open us back up. He's beginning to, to make us less um, self-obsessed and 
more able to see others as they really are, as God sees them. And it's a process of unlearning that self-love, which is really just fear and loneliness, and then being filled by the only one who is good, finding room to actually see other people. But the first thing that challenges our understanding of faith, perhaps faith, when we use that word, is not a system of doctrine, it's not what we think about things, but more um, what we think is known by how we live. The second thing this parable challenges is our understanding of who inherits the kingdom. Who inherits the kingdom? Christians? People who are not Christians? But evidently, according to Jesus, there will be those who had no idea that they were serving Jesus led into the body of people. What do we do with that? But again, I think that, that question is completely related to the first one. Who inherits the kingdom? Well, if Christian names an intellectual system of what we think about things, then maybe not. Maybe they don't. But if Christian names a way of life, a way of life that is looking at Jesus' life, that is confused and mesmerized and compelled by it, attempting it, stumbling at it, failing at it, but still looking and getting back up and attempting it, well then, yeah, they are. But I'm not sure what you're going to And at least according to this story, there are those who are attempting such a life who are entirely unaware of it. And there are those who maybe adopt the moniker who call themselves by the name of Christian because they say, Lord, when did we see you? But somehow, I belong somewhere along the way. And maybe it's that disconnect between the mind and the way we live. Maybe Christian doesn't name what we think, at least not first, but how we live. So I can already see the question for me, well, do you have to be a Christian to inherit the kingdom? Can't I just live that life and not follow Jesus? But again, that question emerges from everything we've been saying about that intellectual system. No, you can't do that because the question presumes that Christian is about what you think. So I'm saying to live that life is already to follow Jesus. Call it what you want. But to live that life, the life you described, is already to be entered into a relationship with the living God. And I guarantee you, you continue, you, you call it everyone, you, you continue feeding the hunger. You continue giving water to the thirsty. Give clothes to those who are poorly dressed. Visit the sick and the impartial. You continue doing those things. Guaranteed, ultimately, you're going to come face to face with Jesus. And you're going to be delighted to meet him. So just keep doing those things. You'll be delighted to meet But notice, even in that question, do you have to be a Christian to inherit the kingdom? Notice the one who's doing the sorting. Just very objective. Who's the one going to sorting? Jesus. Jesus says this, I am the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say no one comes to the Father except through what they think of me, but literally through me. I have the power to let people in or out. On that last day, Jesus is the one going to sorting. Not what we think about Jesus going to sorting. Jesus is going to sorting. Jesus. He decides who enters and who departs to the fire. Notice that was prepared for the devil and his angels. There is a fire, and it wasn't meant for us. But apparently there will be those who do it too. 
There's only one world, friends. The one created by God and reconciled to him through his son. Jesus, that's the only world we're living in. That's the world we all live in whether we see it or not. So I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote when we ask this question, where he responds, we do know that no person can be saved except through Christ. That's the only world we're in. Sorry. But we do not know that only those who know him can be saved by him. We do know that the only world, in that last day, everybody's going to see how good God has been the entire time. And they're going to see who Jesus is. And they're going to recognize it and their hearts are going to confess it. Every eye is going to see that. That's the only way that we enter into the new age. It's through his death and through his resurrection. That is the objective truth of the world we live in. We know it's through him. But we do not know that only those who know that will be saved through him. Because on that last day, it is a person, a historical, a real being, Jesus, who's doing the sword. Not what we think about him or whether we accepted him or whatever that, whatever our intellectual things are. But Jesus himself. Jesus himself. So then, what's the benefit of being called a Christian now? Everything. What's the benefit of knowing these things about God? Everything. Friends, you know the story. You know where the world is heading. You have been given the secret. It's all going to be saved. What joy. You know it's not up to you. None of this is up to you. You get to enter into the work with joy, not feeling the burden and the weight that if you fail at all collapses. It's not up to you. It's up to him. You know, as Samwise Gamgee explains, can it be? Hell yeah. That everything bad is going to come undone. You know that's true. You know that everything bad is going to come undone. What's the benefit of knowing these things about God? Because you're already empowered to enter into that relationship with God. And it's not based on you getting your life together. It's not based on anything other than who God is and what he thinks about you. And that's really good news. So it's a benefit in Anyway, it's like watching a scary movie, which I never do. But it's like watching a scary movie and knowing the ending, right? Don't you watch it differently? Maybe it doesn't terrify you in some parts. Because you know who's going to survive and who's not going to. You know where the story is going. So who inherits the kingdom? Whoever Jesus says inherits it. And Jesus is the one saying these things. It's not to know who inherits what, but to live as those who have already inherited the secrets of the kingdom, which is our relationship with God, full of mercy and grace. And the last thing that challenges, challenges our understanding of faith and challenges our understanding of who bears the kingdom. This parable challenges our idea that faith is hard. Hold on for a second. I know some of you are like, tell me faith is hard? Like, just like, oh. I hear people say often, I can't find God. I don't know what he wants to me. Right? And those are very fair statements. So the first one I'd say that's true. Faith can be hard when we enter into this relationship and he teaches us things about himself and sometimes we can't find him. And it's, it's, it asks for the community to come alongside you there. But I want to push back on that idea that you don't know what he wants to be. You do. He just hopes. Faith isn't hard in the sense that we don't know what he's asking. We know precisely what he's asking of us at every day. Even when we can't find him, even when we have no sense of his presence, we can still do the work that he's asked us to do because he's laid it out. The kingdom 
is found in real people and meetings real people at whatever cost us. When people are hungry, we give them food. When people are thirsty, we give them water. Or coffee, depending on what they When people are poorly dressed, we give them extra clothes. When people are sick, we visit them. When they're incarcerated, we go visit them. What I love about this, as Jesus laid it out, is there's, there's no proof for the question of why. And it's not that why isn't an important question, it is. But at least here, there's no room for why. So when he says, I was hungry, we don't have room to say, well, why is that person hungry? Well, I, I'm sick. Well, why are they sick? Let me see a record of, of their decisions that they made. We don't have room for that. It's just simply a statement of fact. There are sick people. We just there are hungry people. And for us, as people of the new age, we, we offer food. The questions are important, and they will happen, but they're not primarily what Jesus is looking at for the people of the new age. It's something in the middle. I also love that the descriptions of offers are not extreme situations that make too much of our own importance. He doesn't say, I was starving when you fed me. He just said, I was hungry. Like a child who runs in after a long day plan and needs a sandwich. I was hungry when you fed me. He doesn't say, I was dying of thirst when you gave me water. He says, I was thirsty. Like a neighbor moving furniture or someone standing outside on a super hot day. Nowhere to get inside. I was thirsty when you gave me water. The word for, for naked and eat boy doesn't say, I'm glad in this translation, it doesn't say, I was naked and you clothed me. He says, I was poorly dressed. And the word they use is basically without an outer garment. I was not dressed for the weather. And you gave me clothes to dress me well. Friends, this community here, the church, we are not being asked to change the world. Jesus has already done that. We're being asked to live in light of the world that Christ has already changed. We're not being asked to change the world. We're asked to live in light of the world that Christ has already changed. Simple actions that see people, that truly see them as God sees them, and not as others see them, and not as they see themselves. That's where we enter in, and we offer these types of steps. We act with mercy. And it could be actions with tremendous implications. It could be, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I also love that Jesus doesn't over-spiritualize the church. Returning to what we talked about earlier, our twin errors of over-spiritualizing or over-politicizing. He doesn't over-spiritualize the church. He doesn't say, I was spiritually hungry, and you gave me the word. Though again, that's not untrue. This is, one, this is the part of the sermon where you're tempted to take my words to extremes, and that's not what I'm saying. I won't allow it's not untrue, because when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he said, when Satan said, make yourself bread, what did he say? He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. It's not untrue, but that's not what Jesus says to you. He says, not that I was spiritually hungry, he says, I was hungry. And you fed me. And this is why it's important that we don't over-spiritualize, because sometimes, sometimes I, as someone in power, 
I over-spiritualize these words, I can avoid having to actually enter into those spaces where I see the real one. Or the real Or the real incarcerated. When I interpret it to say those who are in prison as those who are in a spiritual prison, which is not untrue, I can avoid having to go to a real prison. Often, that can be, when we over-spiritualize, the defensive power to having to enter into those spaces. But notice, Jesus doesn't over-politicize the church either. Returning to Alawas' quote, the church does not have a political vision. We are that political vision. We are the political vision of God. We are that vision of a new reality. To have a political vision is to be a political party. Trying to make the country that the church exists in a better place. But to be that political vision is already to be that better country. We're already the better alternative. And out of that space, we can begin to work in whatever nation we so exist. We have opinions, but it's out of that space that knowing that we're already the better country. The church, and this is why it's so important, because the church is not one option among others. That's not the way we view ourselves. If, if we had a political vision, we would simply be one option among others. We take the pick. You can be Democrat, Republican, uh, you can be any sort of religion, and you can be the church as well. That's not how we view ourselves. We view ourselves as already the foretaste of that better country. We are the new age in the midst of the whole. We are already practicing all of those characteristics of the new age. God, they love, forgiveness, truth, reconciliation. We are practicing them among ourselves. We are already that better country. And out of that space, we can begin to enter into the world that we live in. Trying to bring the gospel there. To, to allow the gospel to grow there. But recognizing that the church is that primary space. The people who know Christ is that primary space. And therefore we don't put our hope in this age getting back. Recognizing that it's through Christ alone that happens. So Jesus says, I was sick. Or, I'm sorry, Jesus does not say, I was sick, and you advocated for policy. No, that is certainly part of it, so don't mishear me. He simply says, first and foremost, you visit me. And he doesn't say, I was a foreigner, and you voted to ensure the right Supreme Court justice was on the bench. Again, not devoid of it. But he said, you welcome me to your home. You welcome Rather than argue for a better world, we, the church, are called to simply be that better world. Everyone else will see. Between the overly political and the overly spiritual is the human. And out of that relationship, we can begin to rightly see our role in both the spiritual and the political process. Between the overly political and the overly spiritual is the human. And out of that relationship first, being able to see the human first, we can rightly discern our world and both the spiritual and the political process. Or as Elizabeth Brown writes, to turn from everything to one face is to find oneself face to face with everything. That is how we are to do it. 
This is how we are to act in the overlap of the ages. Not an emphasis on right theology, though not excluded, nor right policy, though not excluded, but the ability first and foremost to see the person before us in need and to meet that man with mercy. And even though I said I wanted to challenge the idea that faith is hard, also to actually do this will be the hardest thing you ever do. Because you are living with the reality of the new world in a world that doesn't recognize or see it. This work will go unseen and will be so desperately slow. It will not produce the results you want. It will be so slow and so hard and so painstaking. And that's why our hope has to be in who Christ is. Just yesterday, um, after the taking your training, I went to go see a movie, which I don't do often. Uh, I went to go see the documentary on Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers. Y'all seen that? Gosh, please go see it. Do yourself a favor and go see that movie. So many stories you can Literally, I was preaching this sermon today, and like, I just kind of want to show the movie and be like, there you go. <laughs> this is how you do it. But there's this one scene where um, one, of the, one of the actors on the show, Amy Francois, uh, who's a gay black man in the 1960s and 70s in America. So it was a really tough life. And, um, and of course, a lot of the, the stuff that, that Mr. Rogers made about his doing, stepping into that, stepping into it on a level for children who love that speak to, the, to these political issues. And so on one scene, um, there's a little pool, and Mr. Rogers is putting his feet in the water, and Francois passes by. Because Francois, would you like to come and put your feet in the water? Which, of course, is a huge step, and the children don't recognize it, it's a huge step. But there was this scene, Francois telling this story, and he goes, in their bit, um, they always, when they sign off in, in the show, Mr. Rogers goes, I love you, Francois, and I think Francois goes, I love you back, and that sort of ends the bit, and one day, uh, they're filming uh, Francois, or Mr. Rogers, I love you, Francois, and Francois, he's talking to the camera, it just felt, in that moment, like, Fred was talking to me, to Francois, and he was, uh, was really moved. And uh, when they stopped, they broke on the film. He went over to Fred and said, Fred, I felt like you were talking to me when you said I love you. And Fred Rogers looks at him and smiles and goes, Francois, I've been talking to you every day for the last two years, and today's the first day of fire on earth. And he goes, I just broke down. And I just collapsed into his arms. And on that day, Fred Rogers became my surrogate. And I bring that point up because that embodies this type of work. Where we enter into spaces and we say, I love you, through feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, the way to the sick. We, when we see need and we meet it, we say, I love you, even though no one else recognizes it in that moment. They won't see it. And it might take two years before something shifts in their heart and they're like, look, even though I've been hearing these words, it felt different this time. And then we get to say, ah, yes. Now let me tell you, I've been doing it. I'll tell you why it's been different the entire time. It is unseen, slow work. But that is the work of the kingdom for those of us in the world. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.